has, has, has meant to maybe destroy us or deter us has, has turned into something good. And I'm incredibly grateful to be enjoying that with you as a result of, of the resurrection. And so um, this morning, um, I want to share with you for a few minutes. Uh, I'm going to read a text in, in just a moment. But before we get there, I, I was thinking this week about some things just seem so permanent. Um, like they're, they're just always around. They're always going to be there. When I think of like the pyramids in Egypt, I, I think, oh my goodness, they, they were built like 4,500 years ago and they're still there, you know? And I, I, we can look at that with other, other buildings and structures as well because the pyramids aren't even the oldest, right? Um, there are structures in, in France and in Ireland that are 5,000 years or, or more old. And, and there's, there's a wall around the ancient town of, of Jericho um, that um, they found a, a piece of it that's still standing. And it's dated to, to 8,000 BC, which is like 10,000 years old. Like that, that, that is old. Like it, it's still there. And, and, and when I think of those, those structures that have lasted for so long, they just, they just seem to be so permanent. Like they're never going to go away. I think sometimes governments feel that way, right? Um, they're so strong and so powerful that, that nothing is going to bring them down. Roman rule appeared that way, you know, and our country sometimes feels that way to us. But they all fall. Rome fell. The U.S. one day will, will fall. Governments and nations don't last forever, no matter how strong they are. Death, though, maybe is the ultimate definitive situation. It's, it's permanent beyond all these other things. You know, um, the pyramids seem to last forever, but if you look closely at them, you can see that they're deteriorating. You know, the same with that wall around, around Jericho. There's only a piece of it left. Even though it's really, that one piece is really old, it's, the rest of it has, has gone. And, but, but death, it's like once you die, you're dead. There's no changing that. As advanced as our medicine and science has become, once you die, you're not able to be brought back. Death is powerful and it is permanent. There's no changing it. Once it's done, it is done. So at this point in the Eastern narrative, the disciples are grieving. They're mourning. They're, they're devastated because their rabbi, Jesus, has died. Think about how these disciples, and not just the 11, right, that, that are left. You know, Judas Iscariot has betrayed Jesus. He's gone. There are 11 left. But it wasn't just those disciples. They were included, but, but there were other followers of Jesus as well that, that remained. And, and we read about some of them. There, there's Mary Magdalene. There's the other Marys. There, there, there's Joseph of Arimathea, you know, um, who offered his tomb uh, for Jesus to be buried in. There, there, there were others. And just, just think about how they must have felt at this point. Jesus had died. He was gone. He was dead. It was final. It was permanent. And, but they had followed him. 
and, and, and loved him and seen him do amazing things. I mean, Mary was, uh, Mary Mal was, was healed of, of possession of like 12 demons. And, and he, had, he had taught them these incredible truths that they, they had never known before. And, and they saw him walk on water and calm storms. And, and they witnessed him make a meal for thousands out of just a few tiny loaves of bread and a few tiny little fish. They witnessed him change water into wine. He was able, it seemed, to do anything anything but deny death its due. He seemed so untouchable, so strong, so invincible, but then he died. And they understood death to be permanent, especially after three days, because it was from the Jewish point of view, once you were dead three days, your spirit departed from your body and there was no hope for you. So it's in this context that these women, the two Marys, went to Jesus early on the third day following Jesus's death. They went mourning. They went in deep sorrow, despair, and desperation. They went without hope, defeated, and depleted. And, and this, is, this is where Matthew's account picks up. He, he picks up and, and describes for us what transpired as they approached the tomb where Jesus was buried. And this is how he records it. In Matthew chapter 28, starting in verse 1. After the Sabbath at dawn on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to look at the tomb. There was a violent earthquake, for an angel of the Lord came down from heaven and going to the tomb, rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning, his clothes were white as snow. The guards were so afraid of him that they shook and became like dead men. The angel said to the women, do not be afraid, for I know that you are looking for Jesus who was crucified. He is not here. He has risen. Just as he said, come and see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples. He has risen from the dead and is going ahead of you into Galilee, and there you will see him. Now I have told you. So the women hurried away from the tomb, afraid, yet filled with joy and ran to tell the disciples. Suddenly Jesus met them. Greetings, he said. They, greetings, he said. They came to him, clasped his feet, and worshiped him. Then Jesus said to them, do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee. There they will see me. Jesus, excuse me. Jesus was dead, but now, he is alive. Mary and Mary went from utter defeat to supreme victory in a moment. The Jewish leaders thought they'd killed Jesus. They thought they had the ultimate victory because they had gotten him. They had killed him. You know, people bounce back from sickness. They bounce back from injury, but nobody comes back from death. But Jesus had just done the impossible. He had defeated death. Now, to be fair, to be fair, other people throughout biblical, the biblical narrative and even in Jesus's ministry had been brought back from the dead. Each time they were brought back from the dead as a result of a follower of God being used by God or Jesus himself to be raised. But no one raised themselves. No person had the power to raise themselves from the dead until now. 
until Jesus, who was fully God and fully man, did it, and through it displayed his unparalleled power, nature, and authority. As we mentioned on Friday, Jesus gave up his life. It was not taken from him. And now, on Easter Sunday, he took it back. It wasn't given to him. And why? How could he do this? Because he is God. So this is all getting just a little bit crazy at this point, right? An angel shows up and moves this rock from in front of the tomb. He's white and majestic and imposing, so much so that the battle-hardened soldiers, it looks like they probably passed out. Uh, the women are afraid. And um, then all the women in the guards look in the tomb and they realize Jesus is gone. And the women are told by the angel why. They're told that, that Jesus has risen from the dead. And they are to go back and tell the other believers. And while they're on their way back to tell the other believers what has happened, the other disciples, the guards also head back to town to tell the story to the, the, the Jewish leaders, but they do it with very different results. Here's how Matthew records the situation of the guards telling the Jewish leadership what has happened starting in verse 11 of Matthew 28. While the women were on their way, some of the guards went into the city and reported to the chief priests everything that had happened. When the chief priests had met with the elders and devised a plan, they gave the soldiers a large sum of money, telling them, you are to say, his disciples came during the night and stole him away while we were asleep. If this report gets to the governor, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So the soldiers took the money and did as they were instructed. And this story has been widely circulated among the Jews to this very day. The priest devised a lie about Jesus's body being stolen. And Matthew tells his readers in Matthew 28, this story has been widely circulated among the Jews until this very day. Now let's remember for a moment who Matthew was writing to and why he was writing. He's writing to convince Jews that Jesus is the Savior. Reading these two texts together with that in mind puts things into context. Matthew is contrasting the false narrative um, about the disciples stealing Jesus's body away, making think, people think he's risen from the dead. He's contrasting that with the, the account of the true resurrection story. He gives names. He gives places because he wants the Jewish people and us today to believe. This isn't just a nice story that makes us feel good. It's a historical account of a real event. Jesus rose from the dead. The question before us today is the same question that was before the Jewish people in Matthew's day. And that's this. Will we believe that Jesus is the risen Savior? Will we, will we actually believe that he raised himself from the dead? Or are we going to believe something else? Are we going to believe the lie that the Jewish leadership created to cover this up? We have a choice. We have to make a decision. Whether you've been following Jesus for a long time, a short time, or still haven't made up your mind about him, 
Will we believe that Jesus is the risen Savior? When things get tough, will we believe it? When things are easy and we don't need him to bail us out, will we believe it? When we are lost and having trouble finding our way, will we turn to him and believe? Do we really believe in him and who he actually is? Or do we believe he's just a wise man or a sage prophet? Will we believe he's the Messiah, the Savior of the world? Matthew, um, Matthew closes his gospel with what we um, call the Great Commission. It's in Matthew chapter 28. It just follows these verses that I've, I've read this morning. And uh, it goes like this, starting in verse 16. Then the 11 disciples, this is following Jesus's resurrection. It's following the Marys going back and telling the disciples that Jesus is risen and that they're supposed to go to Galilee and he'll meet them there. It's following um, the soldiers going back into town and telling the Jewish leadership what happened and they devised that lie. So this is, this is following right on the heels of that. And this is how Matthew records. He says, when the 11 disciples went to Galilee, you know, in response to what Jesus had told them to do, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go, when they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. Then Jesus came to them and said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always, even to the very end of the age. So he gets to the end, Matthew, that is, gets to the end of his gospel, and let's assume that his readers, these Jewish readers that he's trying to convince that, that Jesus is the Messiah, let's, let's assume that they believe for a moment. If that's, if that's his, his main point, that that he wants them to believe that Jesus is the risen Savior, the Messiah, then Jesus leaves them with this, this statement, this, this command. It's essentially like he's saying, look, if you believe that Jesus is the Messiah, then you have to do what he says. It's a one plus one equals two kind of thing. If you believe, then you will obey. If you believe, then you will do. That's what we found Jesus alluding to in our text on Thursday night. In John chapter 13, Jesus taught by example and word on the topic of love. He washed his disciples' feet and then shared with them that they would be blessed, not if they simply know of this love, but he said, now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. And Matthew here seems to be making the same point. If you are a disciple, and you believe the truth that Jesus was raised from the dead, that he is the living Messiah, then you will do what he says to do. If we believe him, if we reject the lie that his body was stolen and believe that he did the impossible and raised himself from the dead, conquering sin and death, not only for himself, but also for you and me, then we must submit ourselves to his lordship 
his reign over our lives and follow his commands. And Matthew seems to be saying the chief one of these is to go and make disciples, to share the gospel, and to train those who believe after us in Jesus what we know about him, to pass along what we have been taught to them. And we're not to do this, he says, in our own power, not in our, our own thinking, and, and to know that we're never alone because he says that he is with us always, even until the very end of the age. Max Licato, um, lots of years ago, wrote a book called God Came Near. And in that book, he shares um, this story. He calls it Light of the Storage Closet. And I'd like to read it to you as we close this morning. He says, a few nights ago, a peculiar thing happened. An electrical storm caused a blackout in our neighborhood. When the lights went out, I felt my way through the darkness into the storage closet where we keep the candles for nights like this. Through the glow of the lit match, I looked up on the shelf where the candles were stored. There they were, already positioned in their stands, melted to various degrees by previous missions. I took my match and lit four of them. How they illuminated the storage room. What had been a veil of blackness suddenly radiated with soft golden light. I could see the freezer I had just bumped with my knee, and I could see my tools that I needed to be straightened. How great is it to have light, I said out loud, and then spoke to the candles. If you do such a good job here in this closet, just wait till you get out where you're really needed. I'll put one of you on the table so we can eat. I'll put one of you on my desk so I can read. I'll give one of you to Denilyn so she can cross stitch, and I'll set you, I took down the largest one, in the living room where you can light up the whole area. I felt a bit foolish talking to candles, but what do you do when the lights go out? I was turning to leave with the large candle in my hand when I heard a voice. Now hold it right there. I stopped. Somebody's in here, I thought. Then I relaxed. It's just Denilyn. She's teasing me for talking to candles. Okay, honey, cut the kidding, I said in the semi-darkness. No answer. Hmm, maybe it was the wind. I took another step. Hold it, I said. There was that voice again. My hands began to sweat. Who said that? I did. The voice was coming from near my hand. Who are you? What are you? I'm a candle. I looked at the candle I was holding. It was burning a strong golden flame. It was red and sat on a heavy wooden candle holder that had a firm handle. I looked around once more to see if the voice could be coming from another source. There's no one in here but you, me, and the rest of us candles, the voice informed me. I lifted up the candle to take a closer look, and you won't believe what I saw. There was a tiny face in the wax. I told you you wouldn't believe me. Not just a wax face that someone had carved, but a, a moving, functioning, flesh-like face full of expression in life. Don't take me out of here. What? I said, don't take me out of this room. What do you mean? I have to take you out. You're a candle. Your job is to give light. It's dark out there. People are stubbing their toes and walking into walls. You have to come out and light up the place. But you can't take me out. I'm not ready. 
The candle explained with pleading eyes, I need more preparation. I couldn't believe my ears. More preparation? Yeah, I've decided I need to research this job of light giving so I won't go out and make a bunch of mistakes. You'd be surprised how distorted the glow of an untrained candle can be. So I've done some studying. I just finished a book on wind resistance. I'm in the middle of a great series of tapes on wick building and conservation, and I'm reading the new bestseller on flame display. Have you heard of it? No, I answered. You might like it. It's called Waxing Eloquently. That really sounds inter, I, wait, I caught myself. What am I doing? I'm in here conversing with a candle while my wife and daughters are out there in the darkness. All right then, I said. You're not the only candle on the shelf. I'll blow you out and take the others. But just as I got my cheeks full of air, I heard other voices. We aren't going either. It was a conspiracy. I turned around and looked at the other three candles, each with flames dancing above a miniature face. I was beyond feeling awkward about talking to candles. I was just getting miffed. You are candles and your job is to light dark places. Well, that may be what you think, said the candle on the far left, a long thin, thin fellow with a goatee and a British accent. You may think we have to go, but I'm busy. Busy? Yes, I'm meditating. What? A candle that meditates? Yes, I'm meditating on the importance of life or light. It's really enlightening. I decided to reason with them. Listen, I appreciate you guys, what you guys are doing. I'm all for meditation, and everyone needs to study and research. But for goodness sakes, you guys have been in here for weeks. Haven't you had enough time to get your wick straight? And you other two, I asked, are you going to stay in here as well? A short, fat, purple candle with plump cheeks that reminded me of Santa Claus spoke up. I'm waiting to get my life together. I'm not stable enough. I lose my temper easily. I guess you could say that I'm a hothead. The last candle had a female voice, very pleasant to the ear. I'd like to help, she explained, but lighting the darkness is not my gift. All this was sounding too familiar. Not your gift, what do you mean? Well, I'm a singer. I sing to other candles to encourage them to burn more brightly. Without asking my permission, she began a rendition of This Little Light is Mine. I have to admit, she had a good voice. The other three joined in, filling the storage room with singing. Hey, I shouted above the music. I don't mind you singing while you work. In fact, we could use a little music out there. They didn't hear me. They were singing too loudly. I yelled louder. Come on, you guys. There's plenty of time for this. We've got a crisis on our hands. They wouldn't stop. I put the bink candle on the shelf and took a step back and considered the absurdity of it all. Four perfectly healthy candles singing to each other about light, but refusing to come out of the closet. I had all I could take. One by one, I blew them out. They kept singing to the end. The last one to flicker was the female. I snuffed her out right in the puff part of won't let Satan puff me out. I stuck my hands in my pockets. I walked back out into the darkness. I bumped my knee on the same freezer. Then I bumped into my wife. Where are the candles, she asked. They don't, uh, 
they won't work. Where did you buy those candles anyway? Oh, they're church candles. Remember that church that closed down across town? I bought them there. Then I understood. I, um, as we leave today, um, we leave with the same commission from Jesus that Matthew left his first century audience with. In response to the empty tomb, as disciples of Jesus, we too are to heed Jesus's call to go and make disciples and baptize them. We are called to do what Jesus did. We are now to carry on his work in 21st century America by his power, by the power of his spirit, knowing that he is always with us, even until the very end of the age. We must leave the safety of our dark closets and take the risk of entering into the dark world so that through the power of the Holy Spirit, we can light it and we can pass on our light to others. We cannot stay in the closet. We must go out. If we recognize Jesus as the risen Savior and Lord of our life, we must obey his command to go. And I pray as we close today that we will go seeking with all of our hearts to worship him by sharing him with everyone that we meet, letting the world know through action and through word that Jesus is not dead, but that he is alive. And in him, we too can have life. Amen. We, um, I am incredibly thankful to be on this journey with you and um, to share with you um, joy, to share struggles and sorrows, um, to share the labor, um, the work that Jesus has given us to do. And it is, has been my prayer that God will continue to bring um, people to us and us to people who he is calling to himself. It's been fun for me to hear a few of you sharing stories of how God has been doing that recently. And I believe that that is just the tip of the iceberg. Uh, I believe that he has more and more for us to do. And as we mentioned earlier, I believe that what the evil one has meant for evil and destruction with this virus, God desires to use for revival uh, and for the growth and expansion and flourishing of his church. And so I am excited to be on that journey with you and excited to see how God will continue to use the empty tomb, the resurrection, the risen Lord um, in our lives and use us to grow the kingdom. May God bless you. Happy Easter. And um, we hope you have a great celebration today. Amen. Amen. We're going to leave this line open.